Father, we thank you for your people called by your name. A marvelous thing to be a family of God. Sinners all, saved all. In many respects, the body of Christ being a closer-knit family than some of our families of origin. I pray that men and women find that family here. Fellowship, community, friends to walk alongside with uh, teething babies, with terrible teens, with challenges in their marriage, with divorces, with hurt, with loss, with gain, with celebration, with joy, with a reason to be thankful to God because that is a family. Thank you for these men and women, for those watching in Christ's name, amen. It was the late 1990s I first went to Israel. I had never been, so they call you a pilgrim when you go because uh, you're on a pilgrimage, uh, which I like. And uh, so I was a tourist slash pilgrim. I was with a church uh, in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and the idea was to lead future trips. And so we had a group with us, but I was like everyone. It was my first time, and I'm learning. And um, the one immutable fact I took away from that trip was your guide makes all the difference in the world. When you travel to Israel, as many countries with a group, you have to have a national guide. And so in Israel, you have to have a Zionist guide, uh, and you can't go into certain parts of the country, no-go zones, if you will, uh, Palestinian-occupied areas. You can, but it's complicated, and your guides can't go, and so forth and so on. But over the years, I've had some good guides and some great guides. And I've learned over the years, uh, finding that great guide is a person I can trust and after, I don't know, north of 60 trips maybe, uh, I've also learned that I can disagree with my guide. And I can say, yeah, I know you don't like going to the Valley of Elah, but our groups go to the Valley of Elah. Because I want to tell the story of David and Goliath in the very spot it happened. It's not on the map, it's not on the markers, it's, not, it's, it's sort of a way, it gets the bus muddy. I don't care. This is my tour, and we're going to go to Elah. Okay, you know, it's that type of thing. And uh, I love them like crazy, but we have a great working relationship. I lean on them a lot because it's their home. How much more in the Christian life do you need a guide? Someone whom you trust completely, explicitly. Um, in my years, there have been guides that we have bumped heads, human guides. They don't guide for me anymore. But when we come to wisdom, we have a perfect guide. I'm not negotiating with this guide. I'm following this guide. I trust this guide. As we look through the corpus of wisdom literature, we've talked at length about what it is and isn't. And what I'm hoping you're learning is when you read Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, uh, parts of Song of Solomon, parts of the Psalter, that you're understanding and differentiating, okay, this is wisdom literature and what that means and how to read it and understand it. Um, the, the path of this book is the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. The wicked is depicted as a woman who's seductive and sensual and lures you away. A woman is depicted as wisdom, who's wise and trustworthy and will always take you the right way. The path is the secondary metaphor, if you will. It's the way of righteous, the way of wicked. And you need to pay attention to the way you go. It's addressed to that white marker board, the simpleton, the naive, the, the fool to some degree, but the mocker and some of the fools they're not irredeemable, but they're not interested in changing or learning. The simpleton isn't better or great or on their way. The simpleton and the young and the naive are teachable yet. So the information God is giving from the wisest man on the planet at that time, Solomon, is pay attention, young men, because the world's going to teach you crazy things. And you need to have the right guide, the right mooring, so you're following God, not the culture. On a wider lens, chapter 7 was a very uncomfortable passage about the seductress, literally and metaphorically. She seduces. She's going to take you to death. You're in rut. You're going to die. And now in chapter 8, we have the other side of it, if you will, 
And wisdom is going to shout at you. I don't have the slide on the screen, but you can turn back a page or two in your real Bible or click on it. Proverbs chapter 1. Listen to verse 21 and, 20 and 21, which you're going to hear again in just a moment. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. All at the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates of the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. And so that tees up chapter 8 that we're going to look at in some detail. Now, the problem with wisdom is that we might have an accuser that says, well, I don't like that wisdom, I don't agree with that wisdom, I don't believe that, that's not my identity, etc., etc. Uh, you can never blame wisdom for not having it. You can never blame Christ or any Christian for not knowing Christ. And this is a hard thing for our culture to swallow. Uh, no one will ever be held accountable for that which they did not know. When I was in seminary, uh, I had a professor named Dr. Norman Geisler. Some of you may know the name. Stormin Norman, we called him. And he was an apologist, and he was brilliant. And he had a pretty, um, let's say, a Christian abrasive way of teaching. You dare not ask Dr. Geisler a question. You would be humiliated. When I finished seminary and was doing postgrad work, you've heard my friend Dave Gibson teach, uh, Dave and I were in a situation where we saw Dr. Geisler, and we said, can we take you to breakfast? Sure, he said. So we took him. There were two little uh, fast food places near the seminary, and so we took him to breakfast. He was the nicest guy on the planet. Like, you know, were you transformed? Did you get saved? I don't know. I mean, you're so nice. He treated students differently than he treated those who were, you know, out and doing their thing. Funny story, all the times I've been in Israel, uh, if I, the last six times I was in Israel, I ran into Norm three or maybe four times at Tel Dan, at the same spot in Tel Dan. Now, Tel Dan is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful area where the Dan tribe uh, rebelled against God's allocation and went north. And when you go there, you see why. Because it's kind of like a miniature Colorado. It's got clear water and springs. You're shocked at the water coming out of Tel Dan. There's figs everywhere, animals everywhere. It's a beautiful place. And, and I've run into literally a little rock area where you sit and do some teaching. And I'm running into Dr. Geisler. I'm always shocked he remembers my name. He's late 80s. And we, we skip away from the crowd and we play catch up a little bit. Dear, dear godly man. Been on the John Ankerberg show many, many times. John Ankerberg attributes his apologetics to Dr. Geisler. But Dr. Geisler, when he taught, was right. Didn't enjoy the warm experience of the friendship that I had after. He's with the Lord now. But it was an interesting experience because he was brilliant. And he was a brilliant debater. People didn't like to debate him because they lost. And I'm talking about ad hominem, attacking a person. But the content debate. And I saw him debate many times and it was just spellbinding. But I'll never forget in his, of course, academic way, he would put things simply from time to time. And he would say, put it this way, gentlemen, because it was mostly men in those days. Put it this way, gentlemen. He said, one of these foolish accusations. What about the person that never heard? What about the person that never heard about Jesus or never saw a Bible? And he would say anecdotally, if the problem is they don't have a Bible, I believe Jesus Christ can drop a Gideon's New Testament in their lap. Now, he was being funny and simplistic, but in a few weeks, Christopher Yuan is going to be here teaching. And if you don't know Christopher Yuan, you'll get to know him, a dear friend of mine. And Christopher Yuan has a story about walking in the prison yard and working out and finding a Gideon's Bible in a trash can. So just that to say, no one can ever say, God never offered me wisdom. God never introduced me to the gospel. Because even if that was an exceptional, let's talk about that in a classroom, the story, the rule is not built on the exceptional exclusion of one person not having opportunity, which is not true, be that as it may. 
The adulterous, wicked woman works in the shadows. She allures. She takes you down alleyways, hideaways. The godly woman representing wisdom is in daylight. Everybody can see. In fact, in this chapter, we're going to see she is perched on the top of the city. She can't be missed. The smooth, seductive, deceptive speech of friends and those who were seduced in the evil are depicted in the woman, the adulteress, but the clear, straightforward, unconfusing message are in the hands of the woman wisdom, and those are the two depictions. Um, the immoral bed is a death trap. The moral bed is a blessing. It's that simple. What do you love? Do you love immorality? Do you love perversion? By the way, perversion just means to twist the truth. It's not what it really means. Two plus two doesn't mean four. That's a, that's a white man's uh, you know, systematic racism comment. No, two plus two is four. You twist it, you distort it for your argument. Wisdom leads to wealth, life, and in this passage, to a kingly role. And we'll talk about that in detail. But wickedness leads to impoverishment, to enslavement and death. Think about our culture with that last sentence. Wickedness leads to impoverishment, enslavement, and death. From a sheer principle standpoint, you take this country into socialism and communism, before long, the wealth generators and corporations that made the world work are going to give away all that they had and or leave. And before long, the government won't have enough money to print for all the programs they created. And you'll see what will happen in the street. It's historically proven. It's a cycle. It's a three-decade process. And it's very hard to dig out of. Wisdom leads to a straight life, to a life of wealth, prosperity, and success. And we'll talk about what that does and doesn't mean in a moment. But it illustrates our current culture. Do you want to choose the wicked or the righteous? you want to choose what's good or what's evil? You want to choose what's crystal clear or make it up as you go? Just the same in this ancient book we call Proverbs. The pronouns, by the way, are very clear and they're easy to read. Are you gullible? Are you a fool? Are you wise in your own estimation? The consequences will catch up with you. It's that simple. If you want to choose your identity based on a cultural ideology, there will be a reckoning. And it will be in your lifetime. It won't be some esoteric, you know, ethereal day in the future. Be true to yourself, go right ahead. If you want to have a self-assigned classification, go right ahead. That's the seductress. That's the culture. That's the wickedness. That's the lies over against the way of the righteous, the way of wisdom that's clear and straight. We have a standard. This is a 12-inch ruler with a little bit of margin on each side. It also has centimeters on it because there was a time when we were supposed to become metric. Thank goodness we never did. Um, believe it or not, and I won't give you the whole title because it's a typical government agency, but there is a Bureau of Measurements. It's actually about 16 words. But there's a Bureau of Measurements that, if you will, has the ruler. Because if you're going to manufacture a scale or a ruler or a guide or a micrometer... You have to have an index so that it's the same from micrometer to micrometer, ruler to ruler. You do so, three different scales that are off a little bit, make a dress. You're working in a machine shop, three different micrometers, it ain't going to work. You're a surgeon, three different measurements, not a good outcome. So you need a scale. You need a standard. The standard's not evil. The standard's not racist. The standard's not wrong. It's a ruler. And it says we all need to measure the same way so that if we build a house, it's square. If we build a roof, it doesn't leak. If we cut someone open, we've got the right measurements on where that atrial valve might be so we don't kill the person in the process. When you come to the city of wisdom, you can't miss her. Now, each author and commentator come up with different titles for this chapter. Derek Kidner called it Wisdom's Apologia. That's a word that means defense. 
David Atkinson called it the full color portrait and others. Let me read Derek Kidner's opening paragraph to chapter 8. A chapter which is to soar beyond space and time. It opens at the street level to make it clear first that the wisdom of God is as relevant to the shopping center as to heaven itself. Second, that it is available to the veriest dunce. Third, that it is active in seeking us so that our own search, earnest as it has to be, is a response, not an uncertain quest. And we're going to come back and unpack this a little bit. Derek Kidner, I've referred to him many, many times. Uh, what I find interesting about Kidner today is that every technical Hebrew commentary I read, and these are massive tomes, will cite Derek Kidner. Derek Kidner's books are about this big. He is the genius of being succinct, a gift I do not have as a preacher. Sorry. He can say it in a small space. When I was at the first church I served, uh, I've talked about aerograms before. If you don't know what they are, ask your grandparents. Uh, but I wrote an aerogram to Dr. Kidner, who lived in Cambridge, Histon College, and because uh, I was enjoying his commentary on Genesis and appreciated his brevity and synthesis. And so I told him, because I have a theory that most authors uh, need encouragement too. So I wrote him a little letter, and weeks passed, and I got a letter from Derek Kidner. And it was an aerogram, and I remember in my little office in Grand Prairie, Texas, it may as well have been a letter from the Apostle Paul. <laughs> I was so eager. I mean, he wrote me back. And I opened it up, and it was typical Kidner, very kind and very brief. I wrote him again. Weeks passed. Another very kind and very brief answer. I had a goal to go to Cambridge Histon and meet him. He is with the Lord now, so I'll meet him later. But I was always delighted. I tell you this story because here's a brilliant scholar who can take the passage and make it accessible. And that's what the book of Proverbs does. It takes the brilliance of God and makes it accessible. It's this body of literature. With that, let's look at the text. Chapter uh, 8, beginning at verse 1. The best guide you will ever follow. Wisdom is the best guide you will ever follow. Does not wisdom call? And understanding lift up her voice on the top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet. She takes her stand. Beside the gates at the opening of the mount. By the way, the word opening, three times in this passage. Here it's the word opening, it's the word mouth. So it's the mouth of the city, if you will. Um, beside the gate, at the mouth, or the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence, and fools, understand wisdom. Now let's place ourselves in ancient Israel for a few minutes. Uh, if you were to go, and we took you to Megiddo, you would not only see an active tell, but you would see a reconstruction, uh, rocks that have fallen over, of how the archaeologists believe the gate was built. Uh, gates in a city were not simply, we think about doors like in, in Samson's time, stealing a door. Uh, but we need to understand in ancient Near East and in Israel in particular, uh, these gates were not doors. Uh, these gates, the walls, of course, were primarily secured. And then the gates were basically a left turn, a straight, a right turn, maybe another left turn, and so forth. Why? Because if you're asleep at night and the guards aren't quite paying attention and 10,000 troops come in, they can't all get through the door at the same time. And you got time to start doing stuff from above, whether it be arrows or rocks or whatever you got handy, and they were prepared. So the gates of Megiddo, the gates at Tel Dan, the gates at Masada, we sometimes spend time explaining this picture. More importantly, in Boaz and Ruth's illustrative time, the darkest chapter in Israel's history, the Judges, everyone did what was right in its own eyes, civil war, killing their own people. And at the time when the Judges are judging, we have a little story about Ruth a Moabitess, a foreigner, a Gentile, we might say, a throwaway race, and the kinsman redeemer Boaz. And when he exchanges the contract, he goes to the city gate 
He sits with the elders because the city gate was sort of the elder chamber of commerce place you conducted business in the day. There were no town halls or capital buildings. It was the gate of the city. And so we're given this picture the Israelite would completely understand. She's on the height of the city, the literal high point of the city, so everybody can hear her and everybody can see her when they approach the city. Don't make too much of this, but there's a parallel in Israel called the loser's stone. Now, that doesn't mean you loser, you go over there. Uh, the loser's stone was the ancient lost and found. You lost a bag of money, you had a crier. We found a bag of money, I'm sure a lot of people would come. <laughs> we found a child, maybe they come or not. You know? But the loser stone is juxtaposed, don't make a lot out of this, out of the top of the gate. That's a, one picture that some of our commentators give us. So the gates were more than locking up the city. The gates were commerce. The gates were defensive in nature. The gates is where the elders conducted Theological business. Wisdom is calling from here. Before you come in the gate, guys. Before you go down the wrong way of the seductress, listen to me. Wisdom is flashing. There's banners. There's fireworks going off. You can't miss her is what we're being told. She is clear. She is the guide. And you will do very well to pay attention to her. Wisdom is clear and attainable. That's the lesson so far. Wisdom is clear and easily obtainable. As we read in Kidner's little response, our own search, as earnest as it may be, is a response not to an uncertain question. We'll talk more about this at the end. A number of years ago, a friend of mine came from Dallas, flew into Nashville. We drove my car up to the Little Red River up in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Some of you know where I'm going with this. I have a friend up there that's a world-class fly fisherman. He's uh, caught the big fish in every competition, literally, in the U.S. that you can do. He goes and catches a fish. If you ever read uh, Norm McLean's book, A River Runs Through It, or saw the movie adaptation, uh, this guy thinks like a fish. And he takes people out. He loves to work with teen boys. He takes them out and teaches them how to fly fish. And it's all about sharing Christ in the context of fly fishing. And he's got all these clever ways. You know, you know rod to God. That's how he starts. Rod to God. And then he talks about you know, how, you, how you cast. And if you've watched some of these fly fishing movies where these guys are artisans, that's not the goal. The goal is to get your line where it needs to be. I don't look like Brad Pitt. I know some of you think I do. I don't look like Brad Pitt. I'm not on a rock. There's no such thing as shadow casting, but you're casting and you're trying to get to the place where the fish are. You throw upstream because the fly has to come down and appear to the fish to be a real fly. And then you pull straight. You don't do it like other fishing. It's a whole different ballgame. I'm no good at it. I love to do it. I just like to be out there. He's trying to help me. Michael, they're over there. You got to cast over there. You cast. Let me show you how to do it. The first time he showed me how to do it, you know what happened? He caught a fish. He goes, they're right there. Now, you couldn't see them. Maybe God gave him radar in his head. He could see them. But I think he thinks like a fish. And everywhere he went, my friend and I were having the time of our life not catching a thing. And our friend Chuck was catching every time he threw a cast. He was a guide. I'd be a fool not to listen to a guy that pulls a fish out every time he throws a line in the water. How much more scripture? How much more that which is eternal, not temporal? You need a guide. The best guide you ever have is wisdom. That's what this text is telling us. Secondly, the guide, this wisdom, is moral and godly. Verse 6 of chapter 8. Listen. For I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips write things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Verse 8, all the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Verse 10, take my instruction and not silver, 
and knowledge rather than the choicest goal. And we can bring the verb implicitly over it. Let me reread it. Take my instruction and not silver, and take my knowledge rather than the choicest goal. Verse 11. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Can you see that verse again? The fear of the Lord is to tolerate evil. The fear of the Lord is to love evil. The fear of the Lord is to embrace evil. The fear of the Lord is to invite evil into your school system. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate. Now, this guide, this wisdom, is not merely right from wrong. He's godly. And that's sort of the aha of this section. It's not just about this is good practice or best practices in business. This is godly practice in life. Um, we need to look at three phrases briefly. Noble things, right things, and uttering truth. Noble things, of course, no surprise, are words of nobility or fitting nobility. They're of a high matter. The Queen of England is, in my estimation, a woman of decorum. She never spoke flippantly or casually or in cavalier fun nature. She was wound very tight and very careful. In fact, probably the only uh, sort of fun we ever saw in her, other than some cyclops, was the Paddington Bear commercial that she did with the marmalade sandwich in her purse. And I wonder how much work they had to do to convince her to do that. That's fitting. The word can be conspicuous. It's obvious. You don't speak a certain way. When I went to uh, Moody from the church in D.C., Emmanuel, I had a dear friend um, give me some media training. He said, Michael, you're kind of a flippant guy. You say what you think, and uh, that's fine. We love you. You can't do that on a global platform. And he spent three hours with me giving me a crash course on media training. It was worth a lot. He didn't charge me a dime. And I thanked him many, many times for it. Because when you have a certain platform, you have to use noble words. Secondly, write things. Write things is a helpful word study that means straight. The right way. It's on the level. It matters. It's straightforward. And finally, he rounds off the three with the words utter truth. This is the Hebrew word emet. If you know anybody named emet, it's a great name. It, it does mean truth in the Old Testament, but it also has the sense of a firm standing of having truth. You got any boys about to be born in here? Think about that name. That's a great name to give a son. Emmet. I'm firm. I'm faithful. I'm standing in the truth. Put the three things together. High, noble terms. Obviously speaking truth, they're straightforward, they're firm, and they're level. Summary, you can trust them. You can trust them. Always, every time. If you want to see a current illustration in action, watch some of the YouTube of the Milwaukee trial of Daryl Brooks. Daryl Brooks is the young man who is accused of 76 criminal charges, six of which are people he murdered driving his SUV through a parade. He's defending himself. If you want to see a fool, you want to see an evil person, I'm not saying he's unsalvageable or unredeemable. I'm just saying if you want to see a person that's not high and noble, that doesn't speak the truth, that isn't straightforward and clear, that is deceptive and dodgy, watch a little bit of Daryl Brooks and watch how the judge tries to handle him. It's a great illustration of a fool, of a deceptive person, in this case, more than likely a criminal, the trial will tell. But all that to say, it's juxtaposed against noble, straight, true, clear. You don't have to be clever. You need to be right. 
And that's one of the challenges we have. Solomon builds on the expressions, nothing crooked or perverse. Rather, they're all straightforward. And then there are two imperatives, and these are unusual in this little string of verses. Take my instruction and knowledge. Take my instruction and knowledge. God's wisdom and God's knowledge aren't up for debate. God's not going to sit around and say, well, let's talk about how you feel. I mean, you don't like your identity? Well, what would you like it to be? He's God. And the proverb Solomon is telling us, it's almost like when you command your dog, sit, stop, or you tell your son or daughter, stop hitting your sister. This isn't a negotiation. Well, I feel like it. I don't care. Stop. Are you going to deal with me? Uh, there are certain things. There, this is instruction. J. Dwight Pentecost spoke in chapel many, many years ago. Of course, uh, back to my seminary days. Don't you love all my seminary stories? <laughs> I do. Um, in chapel, he was an irascible teacher. Very difficult. Another one you didn't ask questions or you felt like a fool. Good pedagogy. Uh, Dr. P, we called him, and he's teaching away. In chapel, he says, we're teaching you what you don't know and what you need to know, and you need to accept it. And that was basically his whole chapel message. What you don't know and what you need to know, and you better accept it. Now, I was old enough and I think mature enough at that point to go, he's right. He's right. I'm in a four-year, 130-hour master's program that's kicking my komosayama, and I am struggling, and it's hard, and I'm cranking out papers and taking Greek and Hebrew and writing and reading and translating and have no life. My poor wife is over there going, what have we gotten into? I mean, it was a hard swim, but you know what it was? It was wax on, wax off. You're in middle school, you're in high school, and you're taking chemistry or third-year Spanish or Algebra two or, of all things, British literature. And you say to your mom, I don't want to do this. I hate this. I'll never use How many of us have said, I'll never use this again in my life? Come on, raise your hand. You bunch of liars. Raise your hand high. We all said it. We had some subject we hated. I'll never. Why am I doing this? Because it's wax on, wax off. Because you're learning a rigor and you're learning a skill set of how to work through something that you're never going to use again. But don't miss that process is teaching you something. If nothing else is teaching you perseverance and fortitude. I would argue much, much more than that. Solomon says, take my instruction and take my knowledge. This isn't a negotiation. Because wisdom is always there's no downside. You think you know better than God? Good luck. Not unlike all the things in life we have to learn that are hard, because it is true, because it is right, because it is straight, I can depend on his word even though the world is falling apart. Thirdly, uh, the guide rewards the follower, verses 14 to 21. The guide rewards the follower. Now, when I read this, note the first-person possessive pronouns. It's something that belongs to me. This is my Bible. It is my car. All right, watch that first-person possessive pronoun. Verse 14, chapter 8. Counsel is mine. See what he's saying? I own counsel and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign. In other words, he's saying, it's not because this person is smarter and better and wiser they became king. It's because I believe they have my wisdom. I take it away. They're toast. It's my wisdom, God's saying. Uh, by me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. Verse 17, I love those who love me. Can I remind you again, if you're a believer, he loves you. He loves you. In your sin, in your apathy, in your discouragement, in your loss, in your loneliness, He loves you. You need to come to terms with that. Nothing you can ever do will make Him love you more, and nothing you can ever do 
will make him love you less. And that's really hard for most people to accept. But he loves you. He died for you. God so loved the world. He died for you. And that's the problem with religion. Do's and don'ts. You never measure up. But you can't measure up because he measured up for us. He loves you. I love those who love me. And those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. My yield better than the choice of silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasures. Wisdom, of course, dominates this whole book. But in this section, verses 14 to 21, we have an interesting and, in a way, new insight on wisdom. It's not that this person is smarter and better and more accomplished than others, which they may be. It's that God grants the believer wisdom. It's not that I'm a wise person or Wayne's a wise person or elders are wise people. And they are. It's that God has granted them wisdom. He owns it. He is the possessor of it. A casual reading of these verses leads to a lot of debate. And the health and wealth gospel comes to this passage for uh, maybe obvious reasons, maybe you've not seen it through that lens, but the idea that if you do these things that he'll bless you and there'll be wealth and treasures, the uh, so-called prosperity theology heresy that's still taught. I'm shocked when I see these uh, images on television broadcasts where stadiums are full of a prosperity theologian. I mean, it's not just dangerous, it's deceptive, it's a lie. And Tens of thousands of well-dressed, intelligent people are seduced by this because it is a seductive message. To which I wish all these prosperity theologian charlatans would take their wares and go to India, go to Sudan, go to Nigeria. You take that palaver over there and you say, if you give me 10, God, I'll give you 100. Go into the disability communities that are wheelchair-bound and have uh, children with great disabilities like Johnny ministers to and say, if you believe you wouldn't be in that wheelchair, you wouldn't have brain damage from a birth situation, you wouldn't be sick. You take that lie from the pit of hell and you go take it where it's needed, not pilfering American pockets. Until they do that, even if they did that, it's a lie. Because God owns the wisdom. And he, if you will, lends it to us. Rather than the way of righteousness and the way of justice and the way of material wealth, we're going to sell you a lie. Now, let me speak very briefly about blessing because it's not as though God is not blessing you and me today. Um, Ephesians 1.13 recalibrates me, for he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How many more do you need? Now, what I mean, what you mean, if you're honest, I want more money. I want bigger, better, newer, more. These last few months have eviscerated many of our retirement plans. Truly, it's a different game. Cindy and I were driving in the car, and we said, you know, we don't have what we used to have. And because of our age, we can't get it back. Runway's gone. You younger men and women, prepare yourself. It's not gloom and doom. This is what it is. We're in a context. We live here. Are we faithful? That's what he's after. A faithful obedience puts you in a posture for blessing. Faithful obedience puts you in a posture for blessing. It doesn't mean he will bless you. He will bless you in ways that are intangible and, frankly, eternal over against more money or bigger, better, newer, and more. I'm not anti-bigger, better, newer, and more. I love when people have bigger, better, newer, and more, and a lot of the people I know who are wealthy employ a lot of people who aren't. A lot of people I know who are wealthy give more money away than 100 individuals could ever give away. 
Most Christians I know who are wealthy men and women are the most generous people I've ever met. And they'd rather be treated as a person than a wealthy person. They just want to be a normal person, those who know Christ. Well, the guide shows his role in, or its role in creation. A bit of a long section here. Let me read through it and make some high-level comments. Chapter 8, verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. In the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding in water, Verse 25, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then, then I was beside him, a master workman, and I was his daily delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth having my delight in the sons of men. Note that it's his delight and then my delight. Now, very briefly, there are lots of debates about what this passage means, and there are those old earth folks and young earth folks, and a lot of them appeal to these passages. Um, just to give you a super high level. Um, the identity of wisdom is what's important here. Is wisdom Jesus Christ is the question. Because when you read the word brought forth in verse 24 and 25, that sounds like the incarnation when Jesus was born of the virgin. So people want to say, see, wisdom is Jesus. And while not wrong, that's not what this text is saying, and it's not accurate theologically. Jesus is not wisdom. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who lived forever in eternity past, came to earth, and lives forever in eternity future. Um, German scholars Kylan Dalich made this conclusion, wisdom is not God, but is God's. That's really what you need to hang on to if you're into this discussion. She has personal existence in the Logos of the New Testament, but is not herself the Logos. Logos here is the term for word. It's a big term in chapter, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are in completely enmeshed in a misinterpretation of that passage. But the idea of the Logos is that God spoke nothing into existence, but it's also that Christ is the embodiment of the word. It's a big topic. What are Kyle and Dalit saying? Wisdom is not God, but is God's. She has personal existence in the logos, the content, the word, the revelation of the New Testament, but is not herself the New Testament, the Word. Make sense? So wisdom, is this, and that's why I spent so much time talking about the corpus of literature of wisdom, what it is and isn't. Because it's a different beast compared to the rest of your Bible. You have to think a little differently, and you're smart folks. You can learn this. The idea is wisdom existed before creation. Um, because wisdom is a creation of God, it can't be Jesus, because he did not create Jesus and that's where Jehovah's Witness and others go wrong. So with this in mind, it does not detract from the eternal nature of Christ to say, yeah, Christ is wisdom, but understand what you are saying and what you're not saying. I love Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 in this discussion. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Stop. Firstborn does not mean the first one ever born. Firstborn means primacy. In the Old Testament, when a son was born, he was the firstborn son. He wasn't the firstborn ever, ever born. He was over the family now. He's the eldest and the firstborn. That's all it means. He's the firstborn of creation. He has primacy. Watch, the verse continues to unpack this. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers 
or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Fabulous passage that is saying Jesus Christ was the one who formed the earth. And, you know, again, you've been around me. I've told this illustration until I'm, you're, you're perhaps tired of me explaining it. But Adam is the wordplay. Adam means dirt. We glossed it into the term Adam. He formed Adam, and he breathed the breath of life, and man became a living being made in Christ's image. Eve, of course, is the crown of creation, we say. She was not made out of dirt. She was made out of bone and flesh. The remarkable part of the story is Jesus walked in the cool of the day. He's the pre-incarnate Christ, but he's corporeal. He's like a man. And he's walking around the garden talking to Adam. And they had sweet fellowship. And that's why when they hid, where are you? Not hide and seek. Where are you in relationship to me? What have you done? Why are you hiding? Who told you we're naked? How do you know these things? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat? He is the image of the invisible God. He created all these things. So I think scripture is completely clear that Christ is the creator. He was not created. Two lessons and we're done. Number one, wisdom is no secret and wisdom has no secrets. Um, I have acquaintances, not friends, who have gone from Christianity to Judaism to, um, um, what's the mystical one, uh, Kabbal, Kabbal, um, and it's secretive. I've known uh, people when we lived in Texas who were uh, bread and buttered in the Masonic Lodge, and it's secret. Wisdom isn't secret. There's no secrets in wisdom. It's available to all. She shouts. She's the main gate. She's everywhere. She's screaming at you. I can tell you the right path to go. Don't go that way. Go this way. Um, Secondly, wisdom is not free, but it's available to all. It ain't cheap. It's hard won. It takes work, but it's available to all. You've got to learn wisdom, and you're going to make mistakes. The best teacher on the planet is a mistake. Uh, you may not appreciate the story or that I'm somewhat into this, but um, years ago I started taking small arms training and handgun training and so forth, and many years ago, and uh, I was out on a range with an instructor, and I had a, a, a weapon, and uh, it has a slide came back on my hand and pulled out a big old hunk of meat off my hand, and it bled like crazy. And the teacher walked over, and he said, unsympathetically, that's a self-correcting error. (laughs) He's right. You don't do it again. you got to make a lot of mistakes to learn wisdom. That's not a license to go sin. It's the reality we're stubborn, sinful people. And we have to hard won this wisdom. Um, I remember well parenting our teens. Uh, we had four children, and teen, teens are the test of most parents' sanctification. <laughs> Howard Hendricks said, um, um, "Not murdering your teenage." No, no, forgive me. He said, uh, "Children, grandchildren." See, I'm getting older. Grandchildren are the reward for not killing your teenager. <laughs> Um, teens are defiant, teens are in your face, teens are angry, teens are afraid, and they don't like anything you're selling. Even though you might be the corpus of wisdom, they don't want to hear it. And they surely don't want to hear the grandparent. Grandparent's that old, smelly relic (laughs) that has bad teeth and sits in the same chair in that stuffy old house. That's nothing new. Um, your parents ain't perfect. Cindy and I weren't perfect parents by any stretch. But if your parents love Jesus Christ, they're trying their best. And you need to take their instruction. If you don't, you're rebellious. It's that simple. God puts authorities in our life. I don't like all the authorities in my life. I especially don't like the authority when the lights go on in my rearview mirror. And I pull over and say, yes, sir, more than I ever said in my life. 
Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Here it is. Um, we know we're, that's, we're hardwired sinners. The flesh. We're depraved. And we don't like authority. You know, I, I've concluded, and the psychologists and psychiatrists can correct me, and they will. Um, fear and anger are ways of keeping things at bay. So when your parents are correcting you and giving you good instruction, and you get mad at them and you attack them, that's called ad hominem. You attack the person, not the argument. When you yell at them and scream and slam a door at them, uh, that anger and fear is keeping truth at bay. Anger and fear almost always are a way of keeping truth at bay. I can't handle this. I'm going to get mad at you. If you watch this Daryl Brooks character, it's exactly what he does. He intimidates the judge. He scares the poor judge to death. And a guy that's killed six people and got 73 other, or 70, uh, other criminal indictments against him, yeah, I'd be afraid of him too. And so you intimidate. You throw fear at a person because you can't stop and say, Wisdom is not free. It's hard won. But it's available to everybody. See, that's nothing but pride and arrogance and hubris that keeps us from learning. If you don't know Jesus Christ, it all starts there. And, and the thing that I have to remind myself of, and Cindy has to remind herself of, this world is not our home. I don't like the country the way it's going any more than probably the majority of you do. Christ has me here at this time. He's got you here at this time. Will we be faithful in this crazy time? That's wisdom. Will it change the outcome of the country? I don't know. Not my worry. Oh, but I like to worry. Worry is easier than praying. My friend said, why pray when you can worry? It comes natural. Wisdom's shouting at you. Wisdom's available. Wisdom's always right. Wisdom doesn't cost anything, but it is hard won. You get to choose the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the depth of Scripture. No one ever outgrows the Scripture. It widens and deepens with our years, Spurgeon told us. Thank you for this church, for these people that love you. I pray that you'd help us all grow in knowledge and faith and wisdom to be the kind of men and women you want us to be. In Christ's name, amen.